Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. Maintaining hope is hard, isn't it? No matter who you are, challenges arise. Life has a tendency to get to us all to varying degrees. I've struggled with hope at various points in my life, despite living a very comfortable existence. I've experienced chronic and debilitating injuries that cracked open the idea that hope wasn't always necessarily a given for me. Seemingly all at once, I had a knee go bad and then a spinal disc go bad, and the sudden realization that I could struggle to have hope for the future is an experience that I haven't been able to shake. Though healthy now, those thoughts linger. So hope as a concept within and outside of religion is an idea that intrigues me greatly as I age in ways I never could have imagined eight or ten years ago. So when Dr. Bradley Onishi of Skidmore College and the Street White American Jesus podcast reached out to me to suggest I talk to his friend Dr. David Neuheiser from the Institute for Religion and Critical Inquiry at Australian Catholic University in Melbourne to talk about Dr. Neuheiser's new book, Hope in a Secular Age, Deconstruction, Negative Theology, and the Future of Faith from Cambridge University Press, I knew it would be a great conversation, and indeed it was. We had a great conversation and discussed the book and the world around us in the aftermath of the 2020 United States presidential election, the surging pandemic leading into the holiday season, and the concept of negative theology. We even talked about Jacques Derrida, which was interesting for me. So if you are on Twitter, you can find Dr. Neuheiser at dneuheiser or at his website, dneuheiser.net. But without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. David Neuheiser on his book, Hope in a Secular Age. Dr. David Neuheiser, welcome to Classical Ideas. Thanks. It's great to be here. I'm so delighted to have you. First of all, big shout out to our mutual friend, Dr. Bradley Onishi, for bringing us together. So if you want to say hi to Brad, go ahead. Brad, you're the best. Awesome. Well, Dr. Neuheiser, um, go ahead and introduce yourself however you see fit to the audience of Classical Ideas. Yeah, I mean, at the moment, the thing I'm feeling is that I'm an apprehensive partisan of democracy. because. <laughs> I feel like the American political situation is is really quite worrisome, and I still believe in democracy, but I'm a little worried about how it's going to work out in the in the medium to long term. Um, otherwise, my day job, I am a research fellow in religion and theology at the Institute for Religion and Critical Inquiry at Australian Catholic University. So I'm a I'm an American, but I'm I'm living in Australia. I've been here for the last five years. And I have a background in the history of Christian thought um, and focusing on the first five centuries of Christian thought and contemporary theory. And I draw on these sources to try to think about uh, political and ethical issues that are that are pressing today. So that's what I that's what I'm about. Awesome. Well, considering that intro that you just gave, I think that we should tell the audience that we're recording this on November 18th, 2020. I think it's also November 19th where you are in Australia, right? It's confusing, yeah. Excellent. Okay, so um, it's tomorrow for you. So David's in the future, everybody. Um, so <laughs> I'm curious about your academic path a little bit. Um, what led you to becoming a philosopher of religion? I always ask guests to talk about their their major turning points in their career that set you uh, up for where you wound up where you are today. So what was some of your major turning points along your path? I mean, for me, like for a lot of people, I think, the reason I, I study what I do as an academic is personal in the first instance. So I was, I was raised in Southern California in a really conservative Christian home. And um, as, as I sort of began to, began to read when I was a teenager, I began to feel like the world was bigger than I'd been taught that it was. And then I went off to college and discovered all kinds of different people who, who were a lot, uh, didn't, didn't share the same sort of, um, ethos or perspective of the people that I had grown up with. And as a result of, of all of that, I was actually uh, formally excommunicated from the church in which I was raised mm. after, uh, after an ex- extensive heresy trial. So I uh, was actually kicked out of the community because I 
they thought I had, I had abandoned the faith. Mm. And this experience, as you might imagine, was pretty formative for my intellectual interests, um, mainly because it sort of showed me that religion really matters. It affects people's lives in a really deep way. And so as I sort of finished my undergraduate studies and then went on to do graduate studies uh, in the study of religion, I, I think I was motivated, first of all, by, by the desire to put the pieces of myself back together because I, I sort of had this Christian upbringing that was sort of, it was still shaping me in important respects, but it wasn't the tradition that I was raised with wasn't mine in the same way that it had been. Um, so I had to figure out how to put that together with the sort of new experiences that I was having as I sort of found that the world was bigger and was sort of discovering new ideas. So the first question was just, how can I be a whole person in this context? But what I realized is that the experience that I was having on this personal level, I think it, it, mirrored something that's happening in the culture in a sense, because I realized that in a lot of secular societies, I did my master's degree in the UK. It's a very secular country. Australia is quite secular. The US in different but similar ways. Uh, religion remains really influential, even when it's not obvious necessarily. Mm -hmm. And Christianity in particular continues to shape the way in which people think about political questions. Um, and so I feel like our, the societies that we live in uh, are post-Christian in a sense, but because these religious ideas continue to resonate, people are, have to figure out how, like, what to do with that, what to do with the fact that they remain in force in some respect, but maybe not in the same way that they would have been four or 500 years ago. And so that's really the question um, on a sort of personal level and political level that I've been trying to work through. Initially, I did this uh, in my master's degree through studying early Christian thought. It's like trying to understand ancient debates over heresy and how key concepts that have come to be seen as orthodox, how they came to be formed, like what was the process of formation. And, and then later, sort of as I did my uh, PhD, I tried to situate these questions in the broader context of political theory and political theology in order to try to explain how taking the history of Christian thought really seriously can help us to think about political questions that are alive today that a lot of people care about, even if they're not religious at all. Mm. That background that you just described helps me in a lot of ways. As a reader of your recent book, Hope in a Secular Age, like I can see why you have an interest in secularization. I can see why you have an interest in hope. And I can see why you have an interest in the philosophy of religion, like that entire life path of coming up in religion, being pushed out, then having to find hope in a new direction in life, I feel like frames your interests in a lot of ways for me as somebody who just read that book. So that's really interesting to me. Yeah, I, I, it's not something I talk about very much, partly because it's so, it's so personal. It's easy for people to get the wrong impression about what sure. it means. Um, but I feel like it's, a, it's sort of a common human experience that we, I think each of us have had points in our life, maybe they're less dramatic, but points in our life when things shift and we need to figure out like, how do we, how do we go forward? How do we hold the different parts of ourselves together? Mm. And I guess that's one of the reasons that I gravitated to hope as a concept is that I felt like it, it sort of helped me to help me to do that. That's and so interesting. I, yeah. Yeah. And your new book, Hope in a Secular Age is a constructive account of the concept of hope. And as you just mentioned, hope is a very intriguing concept. It's a very interesting idea, um, as you point out, because it's something that religious and non-religious people alike tend to have in common. Like, it would be ridiculous to suggest that people without religious practice or faith are quote-unquote hopeless. You know what I mean? Um, so the root of our hope may come from different places, but hope is something that almost all, I'm not going to say all, of course, but almost all people sort of cling to. Do you have any other, um, you know, ways into hope as a, as a concept that you started thinking about within philosophy? Like, how did you like latch on to this concept in, in the first place? I mean, I think again, for me, initially it was personal. So the first line of my book is I wrote this book because I believe it's hard to hope. Mm. And in, in my own life, I, I've, I mean, I've lived generally like a life that by comparison with most of the people in the world is pretty comfortable, but I've still experienced pretty, like some pretty dark moments and difficult, um, uh, difficult challenges. And that experience of disappointment, I think is something that's 
different people experience it in different ways, but it's also common and it's something that people hold in common. And what I found in my life is that it didn't do, didn't do me any good to try to explain away the disappointment that I was experiencing. This was an approach that I feel like some religious thinkers take. They sort of say, if a bad thing happens, it's not really bad. It was God's plan. Everything's going to be okay, whatever. But I've found that those explanations aren't really satisfying because uh, if the disappointment's intense enough, it's, it's there with you. It's sort of sitting within you. Um, and so I wanted to find a way to, to acknowledge that, to acknowledge when disappointment is real and to acknowledge just the sort of feeling of fragility that I think we, we experience a lot of the time, while at the same time articulating the possibility of persistence in the face of that vulnerability. So this is something like I feel like for myself, I've needed to work through because it's, it's like what, what, what's required to like live a, a human life um, mm. that's honest and um, uh, yeah, attentive. But I also came to see that it's, it's a political question. So in the ways that you're describing, hope is sometimes made out to be um, something that like religious people own in a way that they, they, religious hope is sometimes thought to give them a kind of special certainty. Some theologians make this claim um, that Christians have a kind of assurance that secular people lack. And as I sort of worked through the different theological and philosophical uh, arguments about hope uh, that undergird my book, I realized that I actually think religious and secular hope are, are, have the same form. They're the same kind of thing. Religious people and secular people both need to find resources to persist in the face of disappointment in this way, because that's just what it means to live a human life. There's no, there's no way around that. And uh, sort of as a second step, I realized that a lot of political problems that are really pressing today, I think uh, hope can help us to find a way through um, thinking about sort of uh, radical political movements and what it's required to sustain the, you know, work for democracy and work for greater justice. Um, for instance, um, I found, I, I came to see that hope is, is something that's like uh, necessary for, for those things to be sustained. Do you remember where you were or when it was when you noticed that hope was like a binding agent between that linked believers and non-believers? Like, do you remember like when you had this sort of aha moment about the, this, this, com this connection between uh, people with, you know, faith and those without? Yeah, I, that's a great question. And I'm not, I'm not sure when it exactly clicked into place, because there are a lot of moving parts in this book of mine. Lots but of revisions for a paper, right? Lots of revisions. Oh my God, <laughs> you have no idea. Um, but the, uh, I think one experience that was really formative for me about this was watching Barack Obama's 2008 presidential campaign. At the beginning of Obama's presidential campaign, I would have arguments with my friends about whether a black man could win the presidency in, in America, given how deep the problems of racial injustice remain in the United States. And a lot of my friends thought that it wasn't possible. I kind of felt like it was inconceivable. And so it's, it seemed like one of the things Obama did is he tapped into this really long tradition of American political reflection on hope. And um, so in that moment in Grant Park, I felt like he was crystallizing something about the way in which the sort of theological and secular political uh, language about hope con con converges often. Obama's uh, talk of hope was, was often implicitly religious, sometimes it was explicit, but he also made it available in a way that didn't presume that all of his, all of his followers were Christian necessarily. And I sort of realized in that moment that hope represents a kind of point of contact between the secular and the religious. It's a word that's sort of charged with significance. And it's often taken up, uh, as I've come to see in lots of political movements, um, as, as something that uh, is profoundly motivating in ways that are similar to religious traditions without necessarily sort of tapping into any kind of metaphysical religious views. You know, and you kind of brought up some religious references there as well. Uh, and examples of hope that spring to mind for me within religion, maybe, you know, hope for resurrection, um, but there also is like other kinds of hope, like hope for the future, hope for prosperity. 
But I'm curious if there's any bits of religious history that really stand out to you as being important to know about the history of hope within religious tradition. So the, the traditions that I work on in Christian thought are, are drawing for their understanding on hope on things that are pretty deeply woven within Jewish and Christian scriptures. So there's a sort of undercurrent of messianic expectation in the Hebrew scriptures. And this gets taken up in the New Testament by Christians as they're trying to understand the person of Jesus Christ and the meaning uh, that he had for them. And one of the things that I find most interesting and striking is that even though Christians began to claim that Jesus was in some sense the fulfillment of the messianic expectation um, in, in what they considered to be the Old Testament, Christians still saw the, those promises as incomplete in a sense. So Christian, the Christian scriptures are shot through with this continued expectation, as you said, this sort of hope for resurrection, the life of the world to come, um, is, is a sort of central affirmation in Christian creeds. And throughout the New Testament, there's this sense that something has happened in the person of Jesus that is sort of radically new, that changes the world, but the change is yet to be realized fully. So in Christian authors like the Apostle Paul, uh, in the book of Romans, he, he talks about how hope that is seen is not hope. Hope, ha hope has a kind of invisibility for Paul. And it's related in, in Romans uh, to the way in which he says creation continues to groan in expectation of the coming of the Lord. So there's the sense that even for Paul, who's sort of like the sort of uh, paradigmatic like Christian theologian in a sense, um, he, he sort of, his, his writings about hope are acknowledging that, that it's sort of hard to wait in the moment, that there's this incompletion as a kind of vulnerability, it's painful. And so even though Christians have this sort of like um, sense that the Messiah has arrived, they're sort of, they're still in this state of suspension. So for me, in terms of like religious thought, that's the, that's the sort of um, heart of it. And one of the things that I've been interested in working through is how even in the wake of secularization, this, this vision of hope and the sort of uh, longing for the transformation of the world that remains, remains to be seen, how it continues to motivate politics even outside of an explicitly Christian frame. Mm. Let's go on to the other hand as well. So now we have like the religious history a little bit. Now I'm curious what the history of the term secularization I feel like that might have an interesting backstory as well that we could do on the other side of the coin. Um, do you have any interesting tidbits about the history of how the term secularization came to exist and to be seriously discussed within societies around the world? There's a long story about that. I mean, there's a, I think the easiest way to tell it is just that in towards the end um, of the 20th century, a lot of sociologists had the view that religion was sort of disappearing. Mm. There were declining rates of religious identification in many advanced industrial societies. And a, a lot of people had the view that religion was sort of on the way out. But uh, sort of towards the, uh, around the turn of the millennium, many of them revised their views and they realized that actually there are religious movements that are resurgent around the world. This has to do partly with the way in which um, modernity as a concept is associated with uh, European culture, but of course the world is a lot bigger. Mm. And so in many parts of the world, um, in the global South, Islam and Pentecostal Christianity and Hinduism and other traditions uh, were, not only, were not only sort of continue to be influential, but in some cases they were resurgent. And then in the US, the, I think 9-11 um, and the sort of uh, anxieties about radical Islam that it sparked um, led to this sense that religion was continuing to have a really important role in, in, uh, in the politics of these sort of uh, ostensibly secular societies. So some theorists have argued that rather than seeing secularization as the sort of disappearance of religion and sort of leaving behind an empty space, but it's a kind of transformation that happens whereby what it means to be religious shifts in a, in a subtle but significant way. So uh, this is something that Charles Taylor argues in his book, A Secular Age. And I have some disagreements with the way that Taylor tells his story, but I think it's helpful the way he, the way he frames it as being um, 
uh, secularization as the kind of translation of Christian ideas into a pluralist context where, um, where those ideas remain in force in a sense, but they come to mean something slightly different. So I hope I think is a good example of that because I mentioned Barack Obama. I mean, he's, he's a sort of example of the way in which hope gets taken up and secularized. And it's possible in Obama to hear echoes of the sort of black church that he, um, that he uh, was formed in, in a sense, his political sensibilities. It's also possible to hear echoes of um, a really sort of amazing and weird book, uh, Theopolis Americana, that the Puritan preacher Cotton Mather wrote in the early 18th century, this idea that um, America gives hope for the world because it's chosen by God. So Obama's tapping into these like theological themes that are that go back a long way, but he's also translating them in a way that they're sort of available to everyone. And I kind of think that's a good way to think about with secularization. Something has happened. You know, we're not living in the Middle Ages anymore, but uh, the, the the sort of echoes of religious traditions continue to reverberate mm. in a way that remains really significant. Gotcha. Well, and what's really interesting now about the term hope is that we're living through this thing, which is the elephant in the room right now. It's the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, You know, we have very good vaccine news within the last couple of days. But where I live here in Buffalo, New York, we are being shut down on Monday. And we're going back into our little egg crate lifestyles, it looks like. So there's hope, but there's also a very mixed bag of, you know, hope and despair going on all at once in my head. Like I'm living in this total cognitive dissonance all the time about, you know, being hopeful for the vaccine news while also being sucked into this thing about my kid coming home full time. And like, whenever Bradley and I um, we're talking about you. I started digging into your work and I found that you put out an article in April, 2020 called honest fragility, which was about the pandemic in which you say that religious concepts continue to reverberate in the absence of explicit belief. And then, you know, you seem to argue that hope is a middle ground to tuning out or living in denial. So we have the tune out live in denial, but we also have this middle ground. And in this year, 2020, I'm wondering if you're noticing or perceiving how you're perceiving like a rise or a decline in hope or a rise or a decline in despair. What are some of your observations since that piece came out? I think, I mean, I think both things are a a danger. And one of the things that's key to my, the account of hope that I developed in my book is that I worry about despair. It's obviously a, a threat to hope people. Um, people can sometimes, uh, they find their hopes are shattered when, when events disappoint them. And I think we're seeing that now. I mean, a lot of people are really suffering and um, the, the burdens of the pandemic are distributed unequally like everything in the societies that we live in. So people of color in the U.S. have been affected in a way that's just utterly, utterly heartbreaking and shameful. Um, people who had less economic resources are made vulnerable in, in ways that um, others aren't. So in that kind of context, I think some people can feel despair as a threat. I'm equally worried though about the danger of complacency. So one of the things I argue in my book is that just as despair is a threat to hope, uh, feeling like everything's uh, uh, just fine, the sort of confidence that everything will be well, can also, can also undermine hope. So some theorists associate hope with uh, positive feeling or affect. Some people associate hope with um, the sort of, uh, a sort of optimistic view that things will be well. But I think hope of that kind is too fragile. And I think we're seeing why in this situation, because in, in the context of the pandemic, there's so much that we still don't know. I mean, when I wrote this piece in, that you mentioned in April, we knew even less, but even now we don't know how things are gonna unfold in the next year. There's a lot of uncertainty. And so it doesn't do any good to act as if things are, are more certain than they actually are because that confidence can, uh, it's, it's fragile, it's brittle. And uh, on the other hand, it, it also distracts us from what we need to do. So I think what we need now is a way to acknowledge that in relation to COVID, things are, uh, things are really hard, things are really uncertain. We don't know exactly what the best thing to do is a lot of the time, but we need to do the best we can and not just sort of succumb um, to the view that the virus will just disappear or there's nothing we can do. And hope is the thing in my understanding that allows us to 
live in this middle space, this sort of difficult suspension um, of uh, affirmation in the face of uncertainty or action uh, in the, that acknowledges its vulnerability. This also goes, by the way, for politics. I mean, uh, I, I feel relieved, like many people do, that um, Joe Biden won the presidential election by a fairly clear margin. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that the prospects for American democracy over the next 30 or 40 years are really grim yeah. because the, the Democrats seem unlikely to take the Senate, even if they win the special, uh, these are the runoffs in Georgia. A 50-vote Senate isn't likely to, to create sort of major democratic reforms. And without them, given the way the demographics in the U.S. are shifting, it seems unlikely that the Democrats will take the Senate in the next 30 or 40 years, like uh, as long as I'm alive, I think it's almost, it's almost inconceivable. Um, at least after 2022, it's almost inconceivable the Democrats would have the Senate. And if that's the case, then anti-democratic aspects of the American political system will be entrenched mm-hmm. by, uh, you know, gerrymandering, overweighting of white rural voters, uh, electoral college, and a Supreme Court that's now the most conservative that the Supreme Court has been in more than a hundred years. Um, no progressive legislation will be able to pass. And um, I think, I think anyone, I think people across the U.S., whatever their political convictions, whether they're progressive or more conservative in their instincts, everyone ought to be worried about that because it means that the, the political system in the U.S. will become less and less democratic. And that is potentially unstable and makes violence more likely. Um, it sort of makes it less likely that there will be a true contest of ideas. So that's all that's to say is that I think there are lots of reasons for pessimism about American politics, but that's exactly the reason why I think we need hope now, all of us, because uh, what we need to do is to, is to mobilize as best we can in order to expand democracy, expand access to voting and um, yeah, defend a political system that's, that's truly under threat. Has this, uh, fragility that this uh this revealed fragility of the democratic process and democratic institutions on top of this pandemic has this altered the way that you see your own work and your own uh research agenda for the next however many years it has in a really deep way i mean a lot of a lot of the transformation i think in in my own thinking is i'm still not sure what it will mean in the long term but i i'm especially um, I've been watching especially closely the movements for racial justice in the U.S. and around the world. I mean, uh, in Australia and in, like in many places, there were movements, there were, there were uh, marches after the death of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And I think the movement for black lives around the world, but especially in the U.S., is a really uh, powerful, um, powerful instantiation of hope. But I'm still trying to understand exactly how hope works there and how it's moving people. And um, one of the things that I think I'm beginning to work through, and again, mostly I'm trying to listen and attend to, to what's going on. I mean, I, I, I feel like, um, yeah, I, I don't have anything like a grasp on it. But one of the things I've been working through is the, the politics of the miraculous. So my next book that I'm writing at the moment is on uh, political theology of miracles. And it's inspired in large part by the movement for black lives and other movements of that kind. Um, Extinction Rebellion, who, who are demanding, where people are demanding changes that seem impossible to envision. They're, mad, they're demanding a justice that um, it, in, in many cases is sort of beyond comprehension, but the sort of impossibility of the aim doesn't prevent them from working towards it. And so one of the things I'm trying to do is to explore how the really long history of, of reflection on the miraculous, both in a theological and a political context, how that can help to give language to the to these impulses that we see playing out at the moment. We will definitely do a sequel to that book um, whenever you come <laughs> out, because right now we'll do the secular, and then we'll do the miraculous on the next time. So that'll be so cool. Uh, you have an open invite to tell me when you're ready for that, by the way. Um, <laughs> awesome, great. So back to hope in a secular age for now. I was really taken with your parable of Morosia in the beginning of the book. And I'm wondering if you can just tell the listeners a little bit about this illustrative example, because I found it to be so gripping and interesting to read. 
Yeah, so it's a it's a story from the Italian uh, Cuban Italian author uh, Italo Calvino, and um, it's just a two two page story, but it it describes something that I sort of see as a parable for the world that we're living in now. So there's uh, there's a prophet in a city who has this prophecy about how um, at the moment the sort of rats run the city, uh, the sort of greed, um, self interest, but uh, a new century is about to begin in which all the inhabitants will fly like swallows in the summer sky. And so as the story continues, the narrator describes how a lot of people in the city think that the, think that the prophecy has been fulfilled. They see themselves as, as being sort of swallows in the sky. Um, but the, the narrator comments, the wings I have seen moving are those of suspicious umbrellas under which heavy islands are lowered. There are people who believe they are flying, but it is already an achievement if they can get off the ground flapping their bat-like overcoats. <laughs> so uh, as I see it, this is sort of a parable of complacency, how in uh, secular, neoliberal societies, uh, it can be very easy to sort of slip into a comforting sense that this is like, this is the, the end of history, as Francis Fukuyama mm. um, said, like this is the realization some sort of synthesis. Um, but the thing that's sad as the story presents it is that these people fail to realize that there's more they could be asking for from the world. But the narrator continues, it also happens that if you move along Morosia's compact walls when you least expect it, you see a crack open and a different city appear. Uh, and uh, the city is transfigured, becomes crystalline, transparent as a dragonfly. But everything must happen as if by chance without attaching too much importance to it. Uh, and I think this is a beautiful example of the way in which even when things seem closed, even when uh, it's, it seems like if, uh, everything is as it should be, we can, we can find cracks in the world where something radically different seems to, seems to open. And uh, I feel like this is, this is what I, I see this as, um, a sort of parable of what hope can do, both to both to sort of uh, resist despair and the sort of tendency of people have to give up in the face of disappointment, but also to to show that uh, in in moments when we are tempted to feel a sort of confidence to sort of give up on the struggle for for a more more just and beautiful world, uh, that we we should remain attentive to the possibilities that exist, um, and even when even when the walls seem compact as the narrator describes uh there are there we can always find a crack or something radically different uh mm. comes to comes to seem possible to flicker into being yeah and like you know um you write also about like how these cracks um but also like surprises can be very unpredictable uh they can be tiny surprises they can be huge surprises and these destabilize the most regular of lives like how all of our hopes um might come true on any given day but also how they might not um how all of our desires may become fulfilled but they also might not and even in the face of this uncertainty like we wake up every day and we try again to look for that crack against all of the odds that we face on projects where success is anything but a given. You know what I mean? Like you called um, hope, quote, a disciplined resilience that enables desire to endure without denying its vulnerability. And I think this is among the most intimate of ideas. It seems that hope, resilience, and vulnerability are woven and intertwined inextricably throughout your work. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about the connection between hope, resilience, and being vulnerable and what these three terms sort of mean to you like as a combined like trio within your work. Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I feel like one of the things uh, that you're really putting your finger on is the way in which um, hope is something that is communal in a sense. So I, in my book, I focus on the sort of personal discipline, the practice that people, um, people undertake in order to keep hope. One of the things I'm, I'm seeing in uh, this story by Italo Calvino is that uh, there's this communal dimension. I mean, the narrator says that sometimes someone's gaze, answer, gesture is enough. It is enough for someone to do something for the sheer pleasure of doing it. 
and for their pleasure to become the pleasure of others. And I think these sort of moments of communal connection, this is something I've been thinking about during COVID times in particular. Um, there's, there are ways in which this has made it a lot harder to connect with people, the situation that we're living through, but it's in moments of unexpected connection that I think, um, that I think this sort of radical, uh, radical possibilities can flicker into, into our awareness. So one of the things you, you mentioned, this sort of nexus that I talk about between hope, resilience, and vulnerability. One of the reasons that those, those concepts are so tightly connected for me is that I think that it's important to remain attentive to these, these moments of sort of connect, connectedness, these uh, the po unexpected possibilities that can sometimes flicker into our vision. And in order to do that, I think it's important to acknowledge that we are vulnerable, that we don't have a sort of um, stable certainty, whether it's in politics, we don't know whether the political movements that, we're, that we support are the right ones, we don't know whether our uh, the causes that we support will succeed, or also in personal life, if we, if we love someone, if we're drawn to them, we don't know whether they're going to enrich our lives or hurt us. Sometimes the people that we love disappoint us. Also in religion, I mean, this is why, um, uh, yeah, so for me, hope uh, crystallizes the way in which religious faith is uncertain in the, in the same way. So in each of these areas, I think it's important to acknowledge that we are vulnerable to disappointment in a way that's really real. Um, but in the, in the face of that, that doesn't have to crush us. And so I see hope as, uh, as a sort of disciplined resilience that acknowledges the way in which things are uncertain, but, but presses forward anyway. Um, yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the tension between religiously hopeful people and secularly hopeful people as well. I feel like something, I feel like religiously hopeful people might view secular hope as more fragile than religious hope. Um, have you found that to be the case? And if I'm, and if so, I'm wondering what like might be a retort to the fact that your secular hope is, is more fragile than mine. Right. So this is a, this is a sort of central um, pivot point for my book because there is a common understanding that I think you're describing that uh, religious hope uh, has a sort of certainty that's provi is provided by um, some kind of like knowledge of the ultimate knowledge of God. Um, and Christians in particular have shown this tendency to claim that they have a kind of hope that secular people can't access. One of the reasons I think it's so helpful to think about hope in the, in the secular context is that I think the context that we're living in shows that that was always a lie that in fact, there are really ancient traditions of Christian thought, the materials that my book draws on. Um, and I'm, I've already mentioned the Apostle Paul, but there are many others. Many, there are these deep traditions in Christian thought that acknowledge that hope is vulnerable, the disappointment, that there is this sort of uh, groaning that's real. And religiosity doesn't provide a sort of end, round, end run around the human condition. That uh, uh, in a way, I think uh, religious hopes have the opposite character. So in the context of Christian thought, I think um, the sort of uh, hope for the transformation of the world, the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come, uh, it, it intensifies discomfort with the situation of the world as it is. I see it as, as being a sort of spur to continual restlessness mm. and continual work to try to make the world more, more just and more beautiful. And, so in a sense, I think uh, religious and secular hopes, as you've, as you've pointed to, they have different content. So people who aren't Christian don't hope for the same things that Christians hope for in every respect. But I think secular and, and, and religious hopes are of the same kind. I think they have the same form because I think everyone, regardless of what their commitments are, has to face these moments where uh, the things that we care about don't come to fruition and we have to find a way to press forward anyway. And uh, yeah, that's, that's a sort of a discipline resilience that I think religious and secular people share. You, you also write in the book, um, and you said this name earlier, but you keep talking about like some other ancient figures like besides Paul. And I think that one of them you were referring to is Dionysius or Dionysius. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. A, a, a pre-modern monk. I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about this figure and why Dionysius came came to be featured within your work. Yeah, so uh, Dionysius is, is, is one of the most sort of influential theologians for medieval Christian theology. 
Um, and so, you know, Thomas Aquinas, for instance, mm. cites these, it's all over the place. And, uh, and also there are other uh, sort of medieval mystical traditions, Meister Eckhart, uh, Cloud of Unknowing and others um, are, yeah, drawing on him in a really deep way. So he's sort of, he's sort of at the heart of, of the really important strands in Christian, history of Christian thought. But in my reading, he exemplifies the most sort of radical theological negativity. So one of the central claims that Dionysius makes is that because, because God and his understanding uh, is the source of everything in the world, God is the creator, and because the concepts that humans have to think with are drawn from the realm of creation, Dionysius says that none of the concepts that we have available to talk about God None of them actually are adequate. They're all, they're all, they all fall short of God in a sense, because God is beyond everything that's created. God's not just another thing in the world, but the source of the world. And so for Dionysius, he, he says that this means that Christians need to negate everything that they say about God. So um, he says in this like really amazing passage that God is not light, God is not goodness, God is not divinity, God is not oneness, like all the, the series of classic theological claims that Christians make about God, Dionysius negates, Wow, which is wild. It's wild, yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. But at the same time, and this is the thing that really interests me about Dionysius, he continues to, to affirm all of those things about God. So he continues to make all of the traditional uh, sort of Christian uh, claims about God. He sort of affirms Orthodox Christian theology in a really deep way. But he, he does both at the same time, the negation and the affirmation. And I think, I so it. first, I think I came to Dionysius partly because it seems like this is kind of a weird thing to think. It's a weird thing to do. It's paradoxical. But I, what I realized is that um, he, this, by juxtaposing affirmation and negation in this way, Dionysius is exemplifying the kind of uncertain hope that I, um, that I think is so important now. So in my reading, his affirmation of Christian thought and practice and worship and prayer, all of that, his affirmation of these things is, um, is as he says, the sort of uh, best we know now in his view, those Christian theological affirmations are uh, based on sort of what he sees at the, at the moment. Uh, but he acknowledges that those affirmations are radically uncertain. So because God is beyond everything, uh, that makes that me, doesn't mean for him that Christian theology needs to stop and the Christian practice needs to stop, but it means to see itself as provisional. So rather than having some sort of ultimate certainty, in my reading, it's uh, it exemplifies a, a hope that persists even though it acknowledges its uncertainty. Mm. Well, and then there's that. That's first of all, that's amazing. I've read like Aquinas and Eckhart and everything, but I, I guess I wasn't going far enough back. So that's really cool. Um, Dionysius learn, is the source. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I've learned so many things just now, which uh, are going to spur a little bit of homework for myself. But I see in your book that there's an overlap between Dionysius, the pre-modern monk, and Jacques Derrida, and I'm wondering if you can tie that thread together. Um, for us to talk about how those two figures are connected uh, in your view. So it's, it's kind of a surprising connection because as you said, Dionysius was a early medieval Christian monk living probably somewhere in Syria. And Derrida is a, a very secular French philosopher who was an atheist of a certain kind, perhaps. Um, he died uh, around 15 years ago. And so they have very different commitments. They like, lived in very different contexts. They wrote in very, very different ways, but I think they're connected by this, this uh, uncertain hope that I've described. So there's been actually a lot written on their relationship, partly because Derrida himself was preoccupied by medieval negative theology, but Dionysius in particular throughout his life, even I've done some work in the Derrida archive, even when he was a, a student before he went to university, he was really interested in this tradition. And so a lot of people have written about the sort of the use of language and negativity and um, sort of thinking about the epistemological questions about what we can know as a potential point of connection. Um, but what I've come to, to see is that I think Derrida is drawn to Dionysius mainly because he sees Dionysius as uh, an important source for um, a certain vision of politics that's premised upon an ethics of uncertainty. So Derrida is often understood partly because his early work is frequently emphasized, he's often understood as being a sort of playful, uh, postmodern, maybe sort of nihilistic um, 
uh, trickster. And also he's really, really hard to read. So a lot of people just think he's a pain in the ass. Mm -hmm. um, but the thing that I've come to see about Derrida is actually, I think from the beginning to the end of his career, he's motivated by a really deep ethical sensibility. And uh, I think that uh, that's actually the thing that he needs to share is a sort of ethics of uncertain hope. Mm. Yeah, you know, and I was in a PhD program like 10 years ago, and I was trying to read Derrida, and I felt like this chapter where you tie these threads made Derrida a little bit more accessible for me because I was, I remember reading those things a long time ago and being like, I don't have any idea what this guy's talking about. I just read the whole entire book and I don't know what it means. <laughs> what book was it that you read? I can't remember. I'll have to look at my shelves downstairs. I think I still have some from the basement, but I'm glad I, to hear that. I mean, I just had no idea what I, what I was reading. Yeah. I mean, I, I love Derrida's work and it's been really important for me, but I, I think that's a really common experience. Um, but yeah, I mean, one of the things I want to do is try to show that he has things to say mm -hmm. to our present context that uh, haven't, haven't yet been heard. So yeah, that's I'm so cool. That making yeah. it accessible to different types of readers within different fields is just wonderful. And you can distill it in a way that makes sense in new context to different people across time and place, instead of being like, just looking at his work. So when you understand it, and you can explain it to me in a new way, that just brings the learning to so much, so much of a better level, which is fun, you know, it opens it up, <laughs> it opens fun. the doors. Um, it opens that crack, like we said earlier. So you've just nah, opened, you you, you've opened the crack of Derrida for me, just a tiny little bit today. <laughs> Um, so glad. So something in the book that I was really pleased with and really interested by was uh, chapter four in particular, in which you addressed common responses to secularization, like dogmatic retrenchment. Um, and, you know, which we see lots these days in multiple forms, as well as like it's indeterminate spirituality in my case, where I've like sampled so much that I see things in all traditions that I absolutely love and therefore see no reason to jump into any one and then I'm thus with left with none. <laughs> so I'm wondering if you can say like what you see is like what drives these people into these different camps of like this retrenchment mm. or this non-committal uh, lifestyle. So we have like these two extremes. Yeah, so this is another reason that I, I frame my account of hope in the book in a secular context as a as uh, sort of working through Derrida and Dionysius and their relationship to each other, because the three sort of approaches that you just sort of gestured towards are, they represent the sort of three dominant readings of Derrida and his relationship to negative theology in the existing literature. So as you say, some people think that Derrida says, we have to sort of inhabit this sort of indeterminate spiritual space that may be sort of quasi-religious, but, um, but on this view, any individual tradition um, is not only not appealing, but also maybe dangerous. Maybe there's the sense that committing to a religion necessarily means you're dogmatic. There's some people who sort of confirm, confirm that impression by, by saying that like in response to secularization, we just need to sort of double down and say that uh, a particular re religious tradition has the answers is the only, the only possible response to the threat of despair is to sort of um, claim a dogmatic, a dogmatic certainty. Um, usually uh, in the societies that I live, it's a specifically Christian uh, form of dogmatism. And on the other hand, some people see Derrida and they think that Derrida represents a radical atheism that, um, that, uh, that actually just sort of rejects religion altogether. That thinks it's just not just um, not seeing Derrida as quasi-religious, but anti-religious. And I think as a reading of Derrida and as a reading of Derrida's relationship to negative theology, each of these three readings misses the point. And that's useful to me, partly because I think that these aren't the only options that we have available in the secular context that we're living in. So one of the things I think Derrida points to in relation to your experience, Greg, is that um, I think Derrida thinks that even something that seems like it's sort of quite indeterminate, it's actually specific in lots of ways. So Derrida is an example, like he's always reading, he's always working through other texts. He doesn't necessarily align himself with any one of them, um, but he, that doesn't mean he's sort of floating above them in a way. Instead, mm, right. Derrida describes the way in which people are, in his view, they're always sort of knit within traditions that they might not sort of claim as their own in an unproblematic way, but those traditions still leave a mark on them. And um, so that's that's the way in which I understand him to be trying to sort of find us like a, a sort of specificity that mm. often gets overlooked 
Um, so indeterminacy in his view would be a space that people can't really inhabit because people are embodied, people are specific, and we're always, we're carrying a sort of network of influences within ourselves. But what that means secondly is that I think he, Derrida, is um, open to uh, a form of religious identification that's not dogmatic. So I think Derrida does resist a sort of dogmatic um, form of religious commitment. He thinks that that's a mistake for ethical and political reasons. Um, but I think on the terms of his thought, a person can commit to a particular tradition uh, through this sort of uncertain affirmation of hope that I think he exemplifies. He doesn't do that, so I'm not trying to baptize Derrida after the mm -hmm. fact. Um, but I think on the terms of his thought, that's something that people can do. And in addition, that's something that I think Dionysius likewise exemplifies. So Dionysius shows that this sort of uncertain affirmation, hopeful affirmation of a particular religious or political tradition is consistent also with the sort of most orthodox Christian theology. So that's a sort of, one of the things I want to offer is just to, is just to say, there's another option besides the ones that seem to, seem to maybe be dominant. Mm. Well, you keep tying me to Derrida. I love this. This is great. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you've read a lot about this within, you know, the history of Christian thought, Christian philosophy. I'm curious if just in your own curiosity, you may have found some favorite uses of hope in any other religious scriptures from any other different traditions. Have you dabbled around looking for hope within different kinds of scriptures or anything? I have, although, I mean, I, like a lot of scholars of religion, I am somewhat alienated from religion as a category. I feel like mm -hmm. the sort of self-alienation of religious studies as a discipline is one of the things I love most about it. <laughs> um, and, and so, um, yeah, I haven't, I haven't done much of what, what often gets called comparative religion, but I have a longstanding interest in atheism that's informed mm -hmm. by my reading of Derrida. And um, I'm not particularly interested in the debate about whether atheism is or isn't a religion. But the sort of comparative sensibility that you're describing, I think I apply that to atheism. And so um, certainly in Derrida's work, but also in literary works. So I, Calvino's, Italo Calvino's stories aren't explicitly religious in, in any way. But I begin my book with the story of Morosia that we've discussed because I think people think with images. I, I mean, there's a style of philosophy that emphasizes the literal mode of discourse but I think that misrepresents how thinking actually works. And so um, I try in my book and in my work to sort of bring in poetry, literature, and other sort of non-literal modes of discourse uh, to sort of open up um, new ways of thinking. I, I, Jorge Luis Borges is, a, is an important influence for me about um, both about hope and also just about how to read. Um, nice. Yeah, for sure. Nice. Well, and you know, I have a question as well that I want to ponder with you here for a second. Um, so I'm, we're thinking about this concept of hope and, um, you know, if you've ever listened to my show, people out there have listened, know that I'm like super into like punk and hardcore music. So I'm thinking about like the bad brains, like PMA, like positive mental attitude, um, like this <laughs> philosophy of life of having a positive mental attitude. And I'm wondering if these ideas of hope and like PMA can be something of a religion in themselves, so to speak, like can hope be a, re can be religious? Can PMA be religious? Like, does this, do these things come together um, at all in your view? Like, does the universality of hope mean we're a little more religious than some of us may believe? Oh, I think it's a really great question. Um, I mean, even though we've been using the word religion throughout this conversation, the thing I try to do in my work is usually a lot more specific than that. So partly based based on the way in which Derrida has influenced me, I tend to try to look at very specific traditions. And so in this case, I'm asking about how medieval negative theology and sort of postmodern deconstruction, how they can speak to each other. And what I found is a, a much, much as you described that I think um, across that, across their many differences, I think they share a hope that's really similar. So that's not to say that Derrida is more religious or not, but just that there's a specific point of contact between these very different um, traditions that I think is important. As for uh, PMA, I mean, I, I find that connection really fascinating. I mean, I, music is another resource for me for both like hope and life. And um, the, the genre that you're describing isn't one that I know super well, but um, I think one of the things I'd wanna say is that in my book, I, one of the things I wanna do is to, is to distinguish 
hope from positivity in a sense. So oh, okay. I think that I think there's a kind of negativity that's built into hope insofar as hope acknowledges vulnerability in my understanding. There's also a kind of positivity at the same time. So the thing that I find interesting and the reason why I think deconstruction and negative theology exemplify hope is that they hold together affirmation and negativity in the way that I've described. Um, but one of the things I think is important, and it's important for politics now, I think in the US and elsewhere, is to create a space where people, people can share a hope that motivates a political movement, even if they're inclined to positive affect or negative affect. So I want, I want, I want up to sort of describe a politics that can incorporate people who are melancholy, people who are inclined to see the negative, and people who are uh, sanguine, people who are inclined to see the positive. Uh, and I think actually hope holds the possibility of holding all of that together mm -hmm. in a way that I think is really important. Yeah, and you know, we're recording this in late November of 2020. Uh, go, here in North America, we're going into a long winter that is going to be fraught with challenges across the entire continent, uh, whether you're in Canada or the US or whatever. Um, what about this time seems extremely important regarding the concept of hope as uh, us here in North America as we head into this, uh, this very challenging winter ahead of us? I mean, it's a, heart, it's a heartbreaking moment in a way, um, especially because the loss of life in the U.S. seems, seems like it's been needlessly extreme. It could mm -hmm. have been different. And that's heartbreaking. And well, I guess one of the things I think is important, and this relates to what I was just saying about positive and negative affect, I think it's important to create a space for a mourning. Um, a friend of mine, Joseph Winters, wrote a beautiful book about this, Hope Draped in Black, about mm -hmm. the relationship between hope and mourning in um, traditions of black thought. And uh, yeah, I think it's important to, to sort of uh, create a space to acknowledge when heartbreak is real without giving up on hope, to, to articulate a hope that can incorporate that mourning within it. So in terms of like going forward, this, the, the dark winter that you, that you all are moving towards in North America, um, I feel like it's important to be honest. It's important to be clear-eyed about what's going on but also to, to try to do the best we can in difficult circumstances, to, to try to discern um, in a way that acknowledges uncertainty, but uh, like goes with the best information that we have, rather than some, simply sort of giving up in a sort of nihilistic resignation. Um, and to, to continue asking for more from the world and for, from, um, from our societies, more, more justice. People don't need to go hungry. People don't need to be uh, killed outside of the legal system by police. Like we can ask for, we can ask for things to be better. And I think one of the things about this sort of COVID crisis that is so like, it's a terrible thing, but it's also an opportunity because it makes everything fragile because suddenly we've all learned that things can be radically different from what we expected um, given how quickly the, the world has transformed in a way that's terrible. I think we should take that as an opportunity for us to ask for a world that's radically better than the one we have now. Mm. Well, Dr. David Neuheiser, I have really enjoyed reading Hope in a Secular Age, and I sincerely mean it when I say I hope you'll come back for a part two when your book on the miraculous uh, is either nearing release or is like newly released. That's very exciting for me. Uh, I'm curious if you can just tell everybody who's listening where they can find you if they want to know more about your work and follow what you're up to. I'm everywhere. Um, I mean, I... Uh, <laughs> you're on my I, screen. I'm on your screen. Uh, I'm in your ear. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I'm on Twitter. Um, I, have a, I have a website. If you search on my name, David Neuheiser, um, you can find a list of, of what I've been doing and i'm also like uh i don't know who's out there but um i i care really deeply about the questions that we've been talking about both the books that my book is about but also about the issues about hope and politics and um racial and economic and climate justice and so i love hearing from people so yeah um you know I, i'm keen to connect with other people who are working through similar things so um you can find my email address on my on my website or you know hit me up on twitter um, I'd love to connect. So thanks to thanks to everyone. And thanks especially to you, Greg. This was super fun. 
Well, uh, you're, you're so welcome. And I was really delighted as a reader who enjoys uh, quick digestible pieces that you also are involved in putting out public scholarship um, for people to, to read quickly. So I love that I found some, some articles as well that you had put out, uh, like what I mentioned earlier, Honest Fragility, the article that you put out in April. So um, yeah, I will throw some links to your work in the show notes. So if you're listening, you can just go into your podcast app below and uh, click on those links and it'll take you right to David Neuheiser's work. So thank you so much for spending this hour with me in the future tomorrow, even though I'm in today still. So it's been wonderful. <laughs> I loved it. Yeah, it was, it was super fun. Thanks, Greg. <laughs>